Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are going to have an uh, episode of Arguing History with uh, the following two guests, Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is a professor in the, his- in the Department of History at the University of Exeter. He is author of well over 100 books and is without doubt the most prolific uh, historian writing in the English-speaking world. And we have Professor William Gibson. Professor Gibson is professor at Oxford Brookes University. He is a historian specializing in 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century English uh, ecclesiastical history. Today we are going to be speaking about the following uh, question. Is the Enlightenment, uh, is the idea of the Enlightenment one of which which is no longer useful for historian? Gentlemen, please go on. Well, can I begin by saying that it seems to me that the idea of the Enlightenment maybe 40 or 50 years ago might have been uh, a kind of useful way to approach the 18th century. But it seems to me that there are two difficulties with the Enlightenment. One is that the Enlightenment has extended itself from really the middle of the 17th century to the 19th century. Um, And so it's very unclear what period we're talking about when we use the term Enlightenment. Um, And the other thing is this kind of breaking apart of the Enlightenment, that there are now national Enlightenments um, at the uh, current International Congress for 18th Century Studies in Edinburgh. There's conversations about the Austrian Enlightenment, the Romanian Enlightenment. Of course, we're familiar with the French, the American, the Scottish, the English English Enlightenment. Um, but again, it suggests to me that there is a, a breaking apart of this homogenous idea of the Enlightenment. And therefore, I'm not quite sure when people use the term Enlightenment exactly what they're referring to. Professor Black? I wouldn't say that that necessarily invalidates a term. I mean, the fact that a term is imprecise may actually be a reason why it's more valuable and more accurate as an account of the variety of human action and thought. Um, There has always been, obviously, with any semantical term, a variety to do with how far it was used at the time or how far it was used subsequently, how it has different resonances across particular um, language groups and then between language groups. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that there are different understandings of what the term means. And again, I'm not sure I would rule that, you know, rule out its use on that basis. After all, the fact that the term revolution or the term war is now used across and in across a wide range of disciplines and in many different meanings does not mean that either of those terms are valueless. So I think here we've got a clash between a desire for precision and the reality of society, um, which in the past and in the present is far more varied. Yes, I think I think that's an entirely valid point, and I agree with you in many respects, Jeremy. The interesting aspect for me is that people like Jonathan Israel have started to qualify the Enlightenment by referring to things like the Radical Enlightenment or the Moderate Enlightenment. 
And it seems to me that that qualification of enlightenment starts to require closer definition. So Israel's radical enlightenment is clearly secular. It squeezes out religion. It's an attempt to focus on philosophical ideas uh, rather than any practical application. So when people refer to the term enlightenment in Jonathan Israel's sense, it becomes problematic if you're, for example, thinking of it, um, well, certainly literary scholars thinking of it um, when they're referring to the, the Gothic, um, romantic and Gothic literary movements. Um, these become problematic. One is very secular, one is absolutely not. Yes, I would agree with that. There is an enormous variety in usage. And as you yourself said, the contexts in different countries vary. And there are also chronological issues, the early Enlightenment or the late Enlightenment or whatever one understands by such terms. But that doesn't essentially mean you throw away the term, because if you throw away the term, what are you going to use in its place? I mean, I suppose you could use the term 18th century thought. And if we were to use the term 18th century thought, we would note a similar variety to what you are referring to. And here it may be that the case that the problem is that enlightenment is used both to a period to refer to a period of time and to refer to a tendency. And that tendency is open to different interpretations, just or different descriptions, just as the period of time is open to different interpretations. But that doesn't necessarily invalidate the idea of a period of time or a set of assumptions that deserve attention. I mean, your particular point is, you know, coming from the background of an ecclesiastical historian is the one that obviously in the long term, the tendency in, in talking about the French philosophe was not to emphasize religion, which is true. But work for a long time on the German or the Italian um, enlightenments or in, enlightenment in, say, Poland has very much emphasized a more religious complexion. And it wouldn't cause a specialist in those, on those areas any surprise to be told, ah, well, there is a um, religious dimension to the period, the thought and attitudes of the period, just as it's entirely reasonable to say that some thinkers had different points of view. And again, as I said, I'm not sure I want to throw away the term as a whole, not least because it helps to set up the possibility for debate and controversy, because clearly at the time, particularly in the second half of the 18th century, there was the possibility of debating the direction of intellectual travel. And in a way, we need to recover the, the contours of that debate without assuming it's going in any one direction. Now, you make reference to Jonathan Israel. Jonathan Israel, of course, by background, is a scholar of the 17th century. He is interested in a kind of secular positivism. He is very much going to take a particular view of a kind of ra radical or secularist 
Enlightenment, the same sort of one that Margaret Jacob took in the United States. And that obviously doesn't scarcely exhausts the subject. But just because individuals make um, sort of offer interpretations, which we regard as rather narrow, doesn't mean we throw away the intellectual conspectus of the idea that there is a subject there that requires requires discussion. Yes, and uh, I'm not I don't think I'm advocating dispensing with the term altogether. I think I'm arguing for a much more precise use of it. Uh, and a good example of the way in which the kind of secular overlay has occurred um, came forward fairly recently in a study of uh, the Empress Anna, who uh, overthrew, overthrew her uh, husband, of course, in the middle of the 18th century. Um, and her abolition of the death penalty is often ascribed to her Enlightenment secular values and attitudes, her sensibilities, um, but in fact have been now traced to her prayer the night before the coup d'etat, uh, in which she dedicated her political activity to her um, to her faith. Well, first of all, I think you're talking about Catherine the Great, who came to power in 1762. Yeah. The Tsarina Anna, Anna, who came to power in 1730, did not come to power at the expense of her husband. She was a widow. But the, and in fact, um, uh, you know, the, her predecessor, Peter II, died of smallpox. But the particular point is this, that there is a long tendency in the discussion of the so-called enlightened despots, people like Catherine II, Charles III of Spain, the Emperor Joseph II, Frederick the Great, and so on, there is a long tendency, and it's well established in the literature, to discuss how far they are guided by ideas and how far they are, as it were, prudentialists seeking to maximise the resources of their societies in the in face of a highly competitive international system. And the answer is, is probably clearly both. I mean, I think the best example of that would be Derek Beals's biography of Joseph, the, the Emperor Joseph II. And I think he draws attention to both. And I think biographies like Isabel de Madariaga's Catherine the Great do the same. I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand what you mean about precision and analysis, but, uh, you know, if we were discussing 20th century thought and somebody was to say, oh, well, let us be precise in our analysis of whatever we were going to use as our leading term. I mean, the, the nature of human society, uh, and particularly once you have a reasonable number of people able to write which and able to publish and to read published works, which is the situation in 18th century Europe, the nature of that society is going to be varied. And within France as a whole, I mean, if we were to just look at France and forget everywhere else and, you know, a lot of which I do not advocate for a second. But, you know, we know a lot of the traditional work has been on France. Then, as as we all know, alongside the well-established principles of writing about Voltaire and the Encyclopedia and all the rest of it, there has been good scholarship drawing attention to different tendencies, not just in um, French society as a whole, but also specifically in intellectual life. And in many senses, the philosophers were acting as they were precisely because they're responding to other people taking a very different view on all sorts of things, including, as with so you know, neo-Jansenists, on the relationship between state and society, or state, society and religion, I should say. Um, so I'm not 
sure what we're going to gain by precision. If what precision is going to do is to provide a single definition of the Enlightenment, it will end us up in a situation. I fear in which most of those who considered themselves enlightened, let alone everybody else, would be excluded for some reason or other. I actually think that porous distinctions are quite useful. And in that respect, I think that a an art subject is not a social science. I think a social science and one of the fallacies of a lot of modern work is to look for analytical precision in what is often much more uh, amorphous situations in which individuals as well as groups are capable of reconciling within themselves different meanings and different identities. You could, for example, as you correctly say, be a supporter of the abolition of the death penalty, but you might have views upon the necessity to have a church state. You could um, be somebody who believes that a church state is inappropriate, but nevertheless think it's still OK to have torture as a form of trying to establish the truth. So the idea that people are, as it were, part and parcel of a of a of a uh, unified category is, I think, subject is a question. And the last point I would make is most people who called themselves uh, enlightened argued that they were rational and that theirs was the cult of reason. But what a surprise. Most of the people who disagreed with them argued the same. I mean, it is it is a fairly normal process in thought to say I am rational and you are not. And I mean, just because somebody says that i don't you know the if you were a jesuit writing in the 1730s you know before the order obviously was abolished you would be producing thought which in your terms was rational grounded based on a careful consideration of a whole host of things and the jesuits had played a major role in uh, advancing mathematics and in trying to understand what we might call cultural relativism particularly with reference to china so the fact that the jesuits didn't appeal to the philosoph does not necessarily mean that they were irrational no indeed jeremy and in fact your your point about uh, the fact that religion and science can go hand in hand is in some ways exactly what I'm arguing for, that um, we can we can better define, not absolutely precisely, but better define the Enlightenment. Um, at the moment, it seems to me that almost everybody who uses the term the Enlightenment, what they really mean is, as you say, the age of reason. They mean science. Uh, they mean rationality, Newtonian physics. And these sorts of things. And all, all of that comes freighted with a weight of exclusion of religion, magic, superstition and those sorts of things. Whereas, in fact, of course, those were major features of the 18th century. One of the things that uh, troubles me about the term enlightenment is I don't think the idea of the counter enlightenment has had anything like the sort of exposure that, say, for example, the counter reformation has. So scholars who thought about opposing forces to the Enlightenment in the 18th century have really been pretty marginalised, with the result that you have to have, um, I, I'm thinking of Darren McMahon's book on the enemies of the Enlightenment, um, and John Beckett's recent book on the, the dark Enlightenment. Uh, you know, people, there isn't a, a developed discourse uh, the counter-enlightenment, it seems to me, that uh, has the same status and weight as the Enlightenment. 
Oh, that's very interesting. And you, you make the analogy with the, uh, the Counter-Reformation. And there, of course, I, I, I think this is really interesting. There, of course, part of the, um, as it were, tension. Yeah. So part of the thing when one's looking at the uh, the Counter-Reformation is, are we going to call it a Catholic Reformation and argue that it has in part similarities with the movement that it is also criticising or opposing? And I suppose with the Counter-Enlightenment, if you wish to use that term, uh, and it's a term that's useful, though it doesn't have quite as much traction as the Counter-Reformation, I think the problem there is that the majority of people who you might say were counter enlightenment had actually aspects that you might also see as parallel. So there's that issue. That's issue number one. Issue number two is if you wish to look for a counter enlightenment, possibly the time when it is most pronounced is the 18 teens, the 20s and the 30s, when there is a strong view that the Enlightenment led to the French Revolution, led to chaos, and therefore there is a movement in response to that. So that's issue number two. And issue number three, just to throw a joker in the pack, uh, not that I'm trying to be unhelpful, but just to be unhelpful, it is worth bearing in mind that scholars have referred to Enlightenments in other periods. For example, the 12th century enlightenment we're talking about western europe the idea of a carolingian enlightenment linked to the court of charlemagne so the notion of an enlightenment is not specific and unique to the 18th century and were scholars of the 18th century to dispense with it in some way that doesn't mean that it's not going to still be there in the um, historical record i mean rather like liberalism i suppose or for that matter socialism or capitalism These terms are going to be used even if scholars of one particular period feel that they're unhelpful or imprecise. But just to go loop back to Bill's point, I think Bill's point about a counter-enlightenment is very helpful. There were clearly some um, major uh, components of society and of thought which completely rejected um, new ideas of whatever they were. I mean, I I remember when I was doing my book on 18th century Europe, I mentioned an academic at Salamanca who, for example, completely and utterly rejected Newtonian physics. And there was the ideas, as Bill knows, for North Wales and the same sort of idea in parts of Italy that at the bottom of such and such a deep or not so deep well or lake or cave, um, occult beasts lived. I mean, the 18th century is also the century which is interested in vampirism, for example, and all sorts of things. But then again, you see, you go to vampirism, which um, they're writing about in the case of discussing in the case of Holland or Transylvania in the 1730s, or let's say the Beast of Gévaudin in, I think it's 1764, a, you know, a sort of strange beast that supposedly lurks in part of France. I mean, you could argue that the belief of that is counter-enlightenment, or you could take the other point of view and say, well, maybe it is. But at the same time, the attempt to understand it, the attempt to work out what was a vampire, the attempt to understand what is 
um, this beast. Um, in a sense, that's also part of the process of inquiry that is not unique to the 18th century, but is one that people at the time would have regarded when they talked about him being enlightened. They would have thought that that was that spirit of inquiry. Yes, and I think the idea of uh, the Enlightenment as a as a method, as a form of inquiry, and as a form of trying to understand the world is a very important aspect of both the 18th century and the Enlightenment, so to speak. Um, one of the difficulties I have is that so many historians are increasingly uh, turning to ideas of emotions, uh, and historians of emotions are clearly focusing on the 18th century as a period in which emotions were predominating. Um, and the nature of emotions, it seems to me, is that they are often irrational and very rarely uh, mix well with, uh, with, with science, so to speak. Um, and therefore, one wonders that what is the place of emotions and the history of emotions in the Enlightenment? Oh, that's very interesting. I mean, I can remember many years ago, Roy Porter um, writing very interestingly on madness in the 18th century and the way in which people looked at the insane. And of course, in the case of the insane, there was an attempt, as there was, for example, with blindness, to try and provide an explanation in which providentialism was moved to one side. I'm talking here about what you might call enlightened circles. I'm not saying this is necessarily true of every body. As far as modern scholarship is concerned, I think the difficulty in modern scholarship is this. Um, culture wars do play a role. And the Enlightenment, which in a way was part of, if you'd like, the, the culture wars of the time of the 18th century, and then of the recovered or, or contemporary culture wars of the 19th and most of the 20th century as a leitmotif of liberalism and progressivism and causes that people were believed, uh, that believed virtuous, whether it was freedom of religion, freedom of expression, so on and so forth. The Enlightenment then became as part of, if you like, the counterculture from the 1960s. There were earlier precursors, of course, but it became a much more negative force among writers arguing that, in a sense, here was an attempt to rationalize and pigeonhole everybody and that this actually had its own inherent biases and also and in particular um, was, as it were, arid and mechanical and, as you say, uh, not dealing with the emotions. So that modern writers about the emotions are in many senses, they, you know, it's not the only reason, but they're buying in to this counter-enlightenment tradition, this modern counter-enlightenment tradition. And if you want to take it further and put a, a really interesting question mark, in a sense, a modern anti-liberal interpretation. And what they're essentially saying, and, it, you know, is that the emotions validate and have always validated a different set of beliefs and priorities. Now, I myself don't find that particularly convincing because, you know, one person's, as it were, uh, emotion is another person's perception of somebody being, you know, self-indulgent, childish and foolish. And I think that there is a curious lack of judgment in some of the consideration of emotions. But having said that, you're correct that the emotions are very difficult to fit into a classic pattern of enlightenment thought. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And this is ultimately Foucault's uh, repression thesis, isn't it? That uh, actually there is a a, a strain in the Enlightenment which is uh, oppressive, which is punitive, uh, which in both in uh, places in fields such as uh, criminal justice. Uh, as you say in Roy Porter's discussion of uh, insanity and, uh, and mental health, that these are ways in which the Enlightenment is uh, bearing down on people and suppressing people, um, which again seems to me to be uh, counterintuitive to the idea of Enlightenment uh, and people becoming more enlightened. Yes, I mean, obviously there are different tendencies here and there are different tractions and a lot of it goes a long way back to the idea, I mean, every generation tries to sort of, as it were, sort of, you know, the Kronos Saturn thing, eat its predecessors. The idea that you've got a romantic thought in the early 19th century and the idea that you simplify what had come before and you proclaim the, um, as it were, the superiority of the spirit over the cult of cold reason, that would be very much an early 19th century viewpoint. And one of the reasons it's attractive to thinkers on the left is the idea that it draws on of a tension or rivalry between different stages of a historical process. So what I was offering at the beginning when I was suggesting that the Enlightenment should be seen as more porous, more multifaceted, is in fact a rejection of the tendency to see the past in terms of stark categories fighting each other in some sort of pseudo-Marxist ascent to the present. And I would say the same thing is true of the present day. I mean, one of the difficulties when we use terms, and I use the term culture wars, I use it myself, but one of the difficulties is it does sometimes risk the idea that there are two clear-cut sides and that there is a clear-cut rivalry. Um, well, you know, I'm not sure that always describes the more complex way in which ideas um, are shared as, war as well as contested and in which developments are assessed uh, in more than one d dimension. But having said all that, modern anti-enlightenment thought in some respects goes back to the romantic critique of what had come before, or self-styled critique of what they thought or uh, sort of argued, reified as having come before. And it is a reification because there was no master plan of the Enlightenment. And, you know, that kind of notion, one of the best books, I suppose, on that would be the John Roberts's first first book on the myth of the secret societies in which he looked at French conservative thought of the 1790s and the idea that there had been some secret society of, as it were, late Enlightenment thinkers and activists who underlay the French Revolution. 
Well, obviously, that's not true. Um, and it's got, you know, aspects of the protocols of the elders of Zion about it. It's simply not not true. It's unfounded. But it captures this way in which reification is used in order, in part, to pursue conspiracy. And, you know, people like Foucault were being stupid. There are necessary consequences of human society in terms of organization and hierarchy and coherence. Obviously, a lot of people don't like that, particularly if they have maverick qualities in their own lives or beliefs. But that is not the same thing as saying that there is some sort of you know, underground bunker in which a group of people are sitting there and saying, right, how do we use the cult of reason in order to, you know, stamp our control over society? Now, such a view would be fanciful, but some of the critique is fanciful. And it is an interesting aspect of the 18th century um, that it sees the myth of secret societies, whether they're Freemasons or Rosicrucians, uh, or later the idea of the uh, Jack, you know, the Jacko, uh, Jacobins, and also for that matter, uh, views the philosophic views themselves about the Jesuits. There seems to be a great willingness to argue for a secret society, and I myself am very sceptical about that. Yes, I I think I agree with you on, on that entirely. Um, can I turn to a couple of other aspects of the Enlightenment, which I think are, are difficult to handle. One is um, the degree to which the Enlightenment was experienced by wider society than simply the, the class of philosophers. Um, because it, it seems to me that uh, the Enlightenment was principally um, a, an educated elite experience and probably one limited to uh, to men. Uh, the engagement of women in the Enlightenment is relatively modest. Um, and it, therefore, the idea of the Enlightenment as kind of universal in society, I think, is problematic. Yes, I think that's very true. I think it is a problematic. And of course, the... Um, a lot of both genders, a large number of people um, were not part of the world of literacy. And there is also a very uh, chilling book by some years ago by the American scholar Harvey Chiswick on French philosophic views of the poor, in which he makes clear the extent in which the philosophes were disparaging about the poor, regarded them as superstitious, a a reaction against, um, um, as it were, progressive tendencies in society and argued, in other words, that there was a link between the hostility that you see with the Enlightenment to the poor, he argued, and what he would have seen in terms of the French Revolution, the fact that, you know, the cult of reason leads, of course, in a definitely anti-democratic fashion when it is dispensing with religion or, uh, or indeed uh, the Federalist response against the revolutionaries in 93 and so on and so forth. So I think um, there is this point that the... Um, there is always, whether it's the cult of reason or whether it's talking about the people, there is always a tension 
between aspiration and reality, but it is, of course, ever thus with political movements and with intellectual tendencies. Um, and the what we term the Enlightenment, reifying it again, um, is more of an intellectual tendency than a political movement. And as an intellectual tendency, it is always going to sort of, you know, when the rubber hits the road, it's always going to be affected by the friction of real life, real circumstances, the difficulties of uh, moving things forward. I mean, you referred to Catherine the Great earlier. I mean, if you're thinking about it, the French philosopher like Diderot found a lot of problems dealing with Catherine the Great or Frederick the Great uh, because the aspirations they might express in correspondence didn't necessarily match the um, what they were able or willing to do. Yes, uh, I was thinking of a, in some ways a more mundane level that uh, the ideas in uh, England of uh, progress or advancement uh, certainly in terms of agriculture and industry, often had the effect of breaking up communities uh, and sh uh, life expectancy in industrial societies dropped. In other words, you have a situation in which uh, the impact of uh, the Enlightenment in uh, people's everyday lives is one of um, a reversal of ad advance um, and and an experience of diminution of quality of life rather than an improvement. Um, but I, th I think that probably is one of those borderlines between uh, the intellectual history of the Enlightenment and economic and social history that really haven't been resolved. Yes, that's very interesting. I mean, <laughs> sorry, whoops. What's happened there? Something's happened. Yes, that's very um, that's very interesting. Should it be the case that um, somebody like um, you know an agricultural improver? Okay, we have a number of famous agricultural improvers in the 18th century. Um, are those, and particularly those that uh, pop, you know popularised their work, print, published about it, joined learned societies to propagate it, all of them, you would presumably argue, were trying to raise living standards or at least increase increase agricultural productivity. And you might say that they were quote enlightened figures, or you might say somebody like Jenner and smallpox is you know, an enlightened figure. I think the difficulty is that one's got to be very careful of assuming a, a sort of unitary activity. I mean, we've referred to the Encyclopédie. That offers a repository of opinion, but also of learning across a wide range of what was intended as uh, uh, applicable um, sort of sciences in order to improve improve matters. And I myself, I mean, you know, I'm fairly conservative, I think. Um, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, not a, in, in, I'm not, I'm not a Marxist at any rate. Um, I'm not sure that I would be um, happy with some of the criticisms of Enlightenment figures. Yes, of course, they were constrained by the social circumstances and the political circumstances of the time. Yes, of course, many of them had... Uh, personal wealth, nothing wrong with that. Of course, many of them had um, views that we might not find, view with favour towards other groups in society. But that does not mean that we should be abstracting them from time and saying, you know, these were bad people. And within the context of their period, I'm not sure that I would regard um, the 
Um, the contradiction, self-interest, porosity of the Enlightenment, however described, as a reason to throw it away. What I would say instead was that um, in terms of the values of that period, it helped to give the um, European and North American world a very different flavour to that of much of the world. Now, I mean, as you would know, to close on that note would be regarded by most people as these days in politically correct circumstances as outrageous political correctness. But, do you know, I have to say that if you're looking at the volume of books published in um in London or Amsterdam and comparing that with the volume of books published in Constantinople, um, if you're looking at the extent to which... um there were attempts to move uh, aspects of society forward in liberal directions uh, across much of Europe, and you were to contrast that with large parts of the world, I cannot but suggest that there is much to be impressed by by the Enlightenment. And on the global scale, yes, of course, people will tell you terrible things about the expansion of European power. Well, two things to bear in mind. I mean, it wasn't exactly jolly if you were Tibetan and putting up with the expansion of Chinese power and so on and so forth. But that there was also, in the case of the Europeans, in you know, for example, um, exploration to the Pacific, the attempt to understand a non-Christian set of societies and to produce a kind of, if you like, post-Christian conception of how history could change. There was an attempt to engage on a broader cultural pattern which contrasted quite considerably with the world of Islam in the 18th century. I'm not trying to decry the world of Islam in the 8th or ninth centuries when it's course fashionable to praise areas like Al-Andalus but all I'm saying is you don't see very much of that in the 18th century. Yes uh, I quite agree I'm not uh, by any means trying to suggest that the 18th century is not a period of advancement and as you say quite dramatic um, exploration and development in all sorts of fields uh, in, indeed I think it, it is um, whether one can, for example, say that exploration is any better or different or differently motivated in the 18th century from the 17th or the 16th, I'm not sure. Um, the, coming back to, to the issue of uh, who did the Enlightenment uh, affect, of course, one of the problems that historians are grappling with, um, particularly the centenaries coming up, of course, is uh, the issue of slavery and the degree to which uh, enslavement is a feature of uh, the era which coincides with the Enlightenment. Uh, and yet it's one of the areas which, of course, seems very problematic when you put slavery and the Enlightenment alongside each other. Yes, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, because in a sense, the Enlightenment both sees the apogee of the slave trade and all over the year the Atlantic slave trade, of course, and also sees the marked development of anti-slavery as a fashionable cause, particularly yeah. in Britain and France, but also more generally. So I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with you. As I said, I think there is I think there is a tendency too much, whether it's from the background of uh, modern counterculturalists, whether it's the background of people with a capital R romantics, whether it's from a background of people who in some way 
British scholars or who seem to think that the Enlightenment was inherently anti-religious, which, as I've said, from the perspective of working on Italy, for example, is just not right. Um, I think that there is a a tendency to look for hypocrisy. Yes, of course, there's hypocrisy. There's all sorts of hypocrisy. It may be that people in the future think that people like myself who sat down and had some meat at lunchtime was an appalling, you know, criminal against, eco, you know, against the nature of a pantheist world. But the, the, what one's got to really consider is, well, was the tendency they were trying to pursue in the 18th century within the limits um a liberal one. Yes, I would say it was a liberal one. I mean, I think you would find and you make mention of the exploration of the Pacific, the idea of, you know, internationally trying to study the transit of Venus and all the rest of it. I mean, I think that was a, a pretty good, um, you know, a pretty good thing. Or Adam Smith, for example, William Pitt, the younger uh, discussing the attempt to have a trade treaty with France in which there was an end of tariffs directly cited Adam Smith in the House of Commons. I don't, you know, I don't happen to think that free trade is a bad thing. But obviously there will be people from modern perspectives who think that a lot of that we associate with Enlightenment thought were, were, were misguided or flawed. I'm just not so happy with that. And I suppose I'm partly prejudiced because I have a lot of favour for the great uh, historians of the late 18th century. And in particular, uh, you know, I thought think Edward Gibbon and the decline for the Roman Empire, uh, which comes out from 1776 to 1788, was tremendously impressive as an intellectual achievement and more so than historical works of the 17th century. And that's because I think he is trying to offer a different understanding of how best to discuss um, the past and the relationship between the present and the past and to have lived in 1776. And, you know, obviously there were absurdities in the American Declaration of Independence and the way they discussed George III. And, you know, no grown man can read that without laughing. But nevertheless, you know, it was a powerful and important aspiration, uh, just as works like uh, Adam Smith or, or, or Edward Gibbon, both of which, as I said, came out that year. I mean, I think this is is a very impressive age. I agree with Bill entirely. It has its imperfections and its limitations. I don't disagree with that for a second. But it is an, it is an impressive age. And if we want to call it 18th century Western thought instead of calling it Enlightenment, that's fine. I'm quite happy about that. But I, on the whole, prefer shorter words when one trying to, um, you know, get up to the word limit. Yes. Uh, just perhaps one concluding point. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, Gibbon and uh, indeed, of course, uh, people like Adam Smith. And I agree their achievement is dramatic and impressive. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking, actually, Jeremy, of your book, Charting the Past, which um, actually makes the case that there were many more uh, historians, indeed, historians who are perhaps more, much more widely read um, in the 18th century than, uh, than, than Gibbon, um, whose emphasis and interest was really not on that kind of enlightenment progressive interpretation of the past uh, but was actually rooted in uh, a religious antiquarian interests um, and saw the past and their part in the past that they're, they're sort of uh, moving the past forward um, as something that was not in line 
Yeah, well, that I think is true. There was a whole host of different reasons, and indeed of writing about the past and the present and the future, all of which excited people in the 18th century. And I think you can see that more generally. And certainly, yes, I have tried to emphasise antiquarianism uh, as well and religious conceptions. I don't doubt that for a second. But one of the really interesting aspects is most of these thinkers, whatever their particular argument, and certainly the case in Britain and in France, Germany, a number of the other European states and in the um, North America would have argued that it was a good thing and acceptable for people to have a difference of opinion. And there was very, very, very little by the 1770s pre-publication censorship. There was, of course, as we still have today, post-publication censorship. You can say something, however true, which can nevertheless land you into trouble with the law courts. But the the pre-publication censorship had very much been eroded. And I'm, I would say that that would have made it easier to write on the past. I mean, one of the great difficulties is that if you were writing in the past during the 16th century or the early 17th century, the, the strength of confessionalism and constitutional change creates so many problems that it makes it very hard for historians or those writing on the past to uh, e evade the consequences. And I don't think that's the truth. That's true by the late 18th century. There is political history and it is politicized. But if you come, you know, if your side doesn't do well, you don't side, you don't face personal danger. And I, I would say that's a good feature. And alas, if you look around the world today, there are many countries in the world today in which if you write uh, and the government does not approve of what you write, life can be difficult. And we're talking not so much here of the obvious villains, totalitarian states or one party states. We're talking about countries like Turkey or India, which are democracies, but where the expression of views which do not match those of the dominant ideology or dominant political party are treated in fairly unpleasant fashion. Well, I think that's a, 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 an interesting and useful point on which to conclude. So thank you very much, Jeremy. Pleasure. Yes, gentlemen, thank you both very much. This has been a splendid discussion. Uh, this is uh, Charles Cotillo, New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. We've been uh, having a discussion with Professor Jeremy Black, Professor William Gibbon, Gibson uh, on um, uh, the hope for first of many discussions on arguing in history. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank Pleasure. You.